Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 151, The Synod of Whitby. All right, to start with, I have some updates from last episode, and let's start with the bad stuff. So, in keeping with tradition, I mispronounced some things in the last episode. Of particular importance for this episode is that I apparently mispronounced synod, even though it's totally spelled synod. And the fun thing about English is that no matter how many times you read something on a piece of paper, it usually doesn't tell you at all how to pronounce it. Oh, English, why do you troll us so? Okay, the second update is way cooler, and it's regarding eclipses. Do you remember how I asked for people to write in if they could work out the astrophysics for 7th century orbits? Well, funny story. It turns out that quite a few of you leapt at the chance to do some research. And I'll read to you the first response that I got on the matter, which was from listener Stephen. He writes, quote, From Medhampstead slash Peterborough, the eclipse is partial, although a very deep one. The partial eclipse begins at 4.17pm, maximum eclipse at 5.20pm, with 97% of the sun obscured. Partial eclipse ends at 6.18pm. The total eclipse is visible across northern England. Amazingly, the center line passes about a mile north of Whitby, with any inhabitants witnessing a total eclipse lasting for 2 minutes, 24 seconds, at 5.19pm. End quote. So yeah, the account of the eclipse in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle was almost certainly in reference to the May 1st, 664 eclipse, which was only off by 10 days in the Chronicle. So that's pretty cool if you ask me. But that being said, you shouldn't take this to mean that the dating in the Chronicle is super accurate. They got this one pretty close, but the sample size is pretty small, and the weight of evidence leans towards always be skeptical with the dates that were given in this particular Chronicle, because they could be years and years off from their actual dating. So there you go. Alright, let's get to the subject of this episode. The Synod of Whitby in 664. Or maybe the Synod. But it should be the Synod. The major players for today will be Hild, who was the daughter of King Edwin's nephew, Hereric. You remember him. He was the guy who got poisoned in the court of King Cheritich because Aethelfrith was busy wiping out the entire line of Deira. Well, it's going to be his daughter, as well as King Oswiu of Bernicia, Bishop Coleman of Lindisfarne, Wilfred, the abbot of Ripon, and Bishop Ked. And they will be, ostensibly, arguing over Easter. See? Once again, we've got Easter causing trouble in Britain. Cadbury's chocolate can't come soon enough. This is getting out of hand. To see how this got started, let's have a look at the early beginnings of the church in Britannia. As you know, it was first introduced by the Romans, but even in those early days, the Brits were developing their own way of going about things that the Romans didn't entirely appreciate. A good example of that would be Pelagianism, which kept cropping up on the island and Rome repeatedly had to send bishops to squash it as best as they could. Meanwhile, across the Irish Sea, there were a bunch of barbarians. So, not much has changed in the last 1500 years. Just kidding, Ireland. But the Irish were definitely barbarians. They were pagan, and one of their industries, if you could call it that, was slavery. And they loved hammering the west coast of Britain. And according to his own account, one of those slaves was St. Patrick. And here's a quick summary. So while enslaved, his experiences with the sheep led him to embrace the Christianity of his youth, like you do. 
and following a mystical encounter late at night, he escaped, became a man of the cloth, and returned and converted a lot of Ireland. Now, he wasn't the first bishop of Ireland, but he certainly was quite effective, and it wasn't long before Ireland was devoutly Christian and developed their own brand, which we're going to call Celtic Christianity. Anyway, so following the withdrawal of Rome, Christianity was holding on in Wales, but it was heavily influenced by the Celtic Church, due in no small part to the close relationship between Ireland and Wales. And I know what you're thinking. How could it have possibly been close? I mean, you had all that slaving business, and also there were a few instances where the Irish nobles looked like they supplanted the local Welsh nobility. So things seemed like they were tense. Well, I guess they worked it out. Maybe they had the help of a gifted couples counselor. I don't know. So anyway, Christianity was still rolling in Wales, and it was a little bit Celtic in form. And there were even pockets of Christianity in the Anglo-Saxon East, which was largely dominated by Woden and Thunor. But those pockets grew in unique ways from the years of isolation. And actually, the Celtic Church and the Roman Church grew in their own ways as well, with their own traditions and doctrines and such. And this too was aided by years of isolation from each other. After all, as you might remember from earlier episodes, travel was really a pain in the butt in these days. I mean, it wasn't all wine and roses back in the Roman days, but it definitely became a problem after things devolved into smaller, insular communities on the island. And meanwhile, Rome had its own things to focus on, and so the islands at the end of the world were kind of left to their own devices for a while. And then, in the 6th century, St. Columba of Ireland, who I really should do a members-only episode on, decided that it would be a good idea to spread Christianity into Scotland. And so in 563, he crossed into Scotland and founded the monastery at Iona, along with his 12 missionaries. And now Celtic Christianity was in Scotland, and it also had ties in Wales. Legends like to pretend that Britain was entirely pagan when he did this, but we all know better, and we know about the state of Christianity in Wales at the same time. However, he still did a hell of a lot for Celtic Christianity, and in founding Iona, he did a lot to spread the religion into Scotland. So Iona was a really big deal. And there were even Anglo-Saxons who worked in Iona prior to the arrival of St. Augustine. So this monastery was really, really important for the state of Christianity on the island. And then Augustine was sent by Rome to convert the Anglo-Saxons, and he arrived in Kent at 597 and became the first Archbishop of Canterbury. However, following a chat with a hermit, the Celtic bishops didn't accept Augustine as having overlordship over them. And they argued a great deal of how to properly worship, which of course involved matters of Easter. And that conversation didn't really go down all that well. And there was even a pretty nasty threat slash curse that was laid down upon them. In the following decades, both Roman Christianity and Celtic Christianity converted the remaining pagan kingdoms of Britain and gained powerful allies. And that brings us to now, nearly 70 years after Augustine threatened the Celtic bishops, and the argument over the date of Easter is still raging. And the thing is that both churches had solid arguments supporting their calculations. And also, they both held a great deal of power over the island, which was a problem because it recently came to a head in the north. The thing is that King Oswy was raised in the Celtic tradition, and he had deep roots in it. But his wife, Ainfled, and also his son, King Alfred of Deira, well, they followed the Roman tradition. 
And you can see how that might get confusing, can't you? Actually, Bede pointed out that sometimes it resulted in Easter being celebrated twice a year, which would have caused a strange overlap of Lent, fasts, and feasts that would have made court rather inefficient at times. So it's quite a mess, right? So at some point, Oswiu, Ainflade, and Alfrith determined that there could be only one date for Easter. Well, that's not true. I mean, the date is constantly shifting since it's always on a Sunday, and even today there are debates on the correct date, but for the Synod of Whitby, there could be only one. And it wasn't just Easter. There was also the incredibly important issue of haircuts. The Celtic monks had a unique way of cutting their hair that had unknown origins. Meanwhile, the Roman monks cut their hair in a similar pattern as the slaves had done back when the Roman Empire still held the West. And the Romans, who loved symbolism, connected this style to the crown of thorns worn by Christ. And the other thing that the Romans loved was uniformity. So as far as Rome was concerned, the Celtic monks needed to cut their weird hippie hair. And I know I'm making light of this, but it actually was a pretty big deal. And actually, this conflict between these churches wasn't just over Easter and haircuts. Easter was just a growing theme in the conflict, so I'm putting that up front. But the strain between the Roman and Celtic churches was palpable and not merely cosmetic. They were fighting over core concepts of the nature of worship. Sherman bluntly stated that Irish Christianity was, quote, spiritual, intensely personal, dedicated only to the word of God, end quote. While from the Celtic perspective, Rome was, quote, materialistic, tightly organized, widely social in intent, and intolerantly conformist, end quote. Now, while she was not a doctorate in history, she did have a point here. And she very well might have been right when she theorized that though the Synod might have focused on Easter and haircuts, Rome also had serious issues with the social standing of the clergy in the Celtic church. Because there, the Celtic bishops were ranked differently and were barely higher than abbots. And that sort of organization was in direct conflict with the Roman hierarchy. And so, it was a direct challenge to the Roman system. These were not just issues with rituals. But rather, there were also issues with core church doctrines. The divisions were so deep that they could not be bridged without one side giving up ground. And this was due in no small part to the common viewpoint in Roman Christianity that all of Christendom should have the same set of doctrines and structure. It should be unified. Because of that, there was no room for compromise. No middle ground. Either the Roman Church or the Celtic Church would have to back down. Nothing less was possible. And with that in mind, it's not hard to understand why the Roman Church saw the Celtic Church as schismatics and heretics, while the Celtic clergy would even refuse to eat with Roman clergy. These were deep divisions of belief. I mean, hell, going right back to that first meeting between the Celtic bishops and Augustine, the Celtic bishops all but assumed that Augustine was the Antichrist. This was not an administrative matter. It was a fight for the soul of Britain. And in the middle of this power struggle were the newly converted Anglo-Saxons. With the North leaning Celtic and the South leaning Roman. And so King Oswiu of Bernicia called a synod to settle the issues and declared that it would take place at the Monastery of Whitby in Northern Yorkshire, which was within his own kingdom. Now, Whitby would have looked like a little monastic village at this point in time, with just a few little buildings grouped together. It was a relatively new monastic site, 
And this was early in the church's history on the island, so it wouldn't have been extravagant or majestic either. But it was run by Hild, the daughter of King Edwin of De Ira's nephew. So think about what we have here. We have Oswiu, a son of Aethelfrith, calling a synod at the location that was run by the daughter of one of the men that he was hunting down when he purged the dynasty of De Ira. Small world, right? These families had quite a history. And beyond strange family ties, the location itself is rather interesting because the monastery was organized in the Celtic style, and Hilda herself was aligned with Celtic Christianity. Though, as we already mentioned, there weren't going to be any compromises, so I guess neutral ground for this meeting would have been impossible. So everyone gathered at the little monastery. There were major bishops from the Roman and Celtic churches, as well as members of the cloth and nobles present. Think of this like a 7th century version of the Scopes monkey trial. People would have, and did, come from far and wide to see it. However, Archbishop Deus did it, of Canterbury, wasn't there. But he had a good excuse. He was either too sick to travel, or he was already dead, as he did die that year. It turns out that there was a plague sweeping through the land at the same time as the Synod, so that probably slowed things down for Deus did it. But for the most part, this was a gathering of many of the major movers and shakers within the church. And so it began. And King Oswiu pointed out, as he opened the Synod, it is fitting, quote, that those who served one God should observe one rule of life and not differ in the celebration of the heavenly sacraments, seeing that they all hoped for one kingdom in heaven, end quote. So right there, right from the start, it was established that this was nothing less than a determination for the mode of worship for all of Northern England. And in many ways, it does look a bit like a trial. King Oswiu was acting sort of like a judge, as it was he who would decide the matter. But at the same time, it was clear that he was already leaning towards the Celtic side. He practiced in that form. His brother, King Oswald, was close with St. Aidan, who sided with the Celtic methods. And the North was closely allied with Iona. However, Queen Ainflaid of Bernicia was also present, and she sided with Rome. So all in all, this was set up to be an interesting day. Bishop Coleman of Lindisfarne argued in favor of the Celtic Church. And Bishop Agilbert of Wessex was supposed to be arguing for Rome. However, his grasp on Old English left much to be desired, so he had Wilfred, the abbot of Ripon, argue on his behalf. And this was an interesting move, because Bishop Ked was present to act as an interpreter, so issues of language would have been minimized, and yet he still passed the mantle. And the decision for Wilfred to speak could have been a simple matter of linguistic expedience, and surely Oswiu would have appreciated hearing arguments in his own tongue. However, there's something interesting about the biography of Bishop Agilbert. Namely, he had a history with the Celtic Church, having studied the scriptures in Ireland for quite some time before being appointed as the Bishop of Wessex by King Chenwall. So he had ties, and yet he was booked to argue the Roman position, which might have been a little bit awkward for him. And so I wonder if language gave him an easy out. There's no evidence saying that it was. It's just my idle musings. But perhaps that's the case. But why pick Wilfred specifically? What made this abbot so special? Well, when he was a boy, he was in Oswiu's court. And Queen Ainflaid took a liking to him, 
and became his patron. She liked him so much that she sent him to Canterbury to study, and later he went to Rome. And upon returning, King Alfred of Deira, and that was Ainflaed and Oswiu's son, well, King Alfred expelled the Celtic monks of Ripon and installed Wilfred as the new abbot. And that was almost certainly at Queen Ainflaed's request. So Abbot Wilfred was young, well-traveled, educated, ambitious, and he had a powerful patron. It made perfect sense to have Wilfred do the speaking. Anyway, so that's how the thing was organized. And there were, of course, many other attendees. Like I mentioned, King Alfreth of Deira was there, and so was Bishop Ked doing translations, hopefully with one of those cool EU earpieces. Now, the first issue to be debated was over the date of Easter, which was a predictable conflict because they were trying to make a festival that was tied to the lunar calendar work with the Roman solar calendar. And that's just never going to be easy. And this is actually such an issue that even today, the Roman Church and the Orthodox Church disagree on the date of Easter. And honestly, the computation of Easter is just too complex to get into on a podcast. And so I'm just going to offer a quote or two to sum it up as best as I can. The thing that they were discussing, according to Stephen of Ripon, was, quote, whether in accordance with the British and Scottish manner and that of the whole northern district, Easter should be kept on the Sunday between the 14th day of the moon and the 22nd, or whether the plan of the Apostolic See was better, namely to celebrate Easter Sunday between the 15th day of the moon and the 21st. End quote. Do you see the difference between the two? Not much, right? At least according to Stephen, the Celtic method was basically the Roman method plus a couple days. I mean, sure, the Roman method is fixed to a 19-year cycle, while the Celtic method is fixed to an 84-year cycle, and there were some other factors that were included. But still, it's not much. Now, Bede's account has the Celtic church celebrating from the 14th to the 20th, so rather than adding two days, Bede just has the Celts using the same length of time, just shifted by one day. But overall, that's what's going on here. And getting into any more details on these calendar issues would likely make you hit skip, so I'm going to stop right there. But if you're like me, you're probably thinking several things. First, that's a stupidly complex way to arrange a celebration. Why didn't someone just say, whoa, whoa, whoa. All right, everybody put down the protractors and your graphical calculators. We're going to be doing it on the 18th. Every year. Period. I mean, that would save people a lot of headaches. And frankly, people would have an easier time preparing for the holiday. I mean, how many of you have to go online to find out what day Easter lands on every year? Second, why is this even an issue? The two calculations are ridiculously similar. And are calendars seriously that important when it comes to spirituality? And third, how did the Celtic Church end up with a different method? Well, funny story here. Their method was actually used by the Continental Christians until about the mid-5th century. Which, coincidentally, was roughly around the same time that Britannia broke from Rome. So yeah, the Celtic method was older. So, that's the core argument. And then the Synod began. Round 1. Fight! Bishop Coleman took the first crack at it, pointing out that the Celtic dating could be traced back to the Apostle John. Which is a strong start. John was famous for outliving the other apostles and dodging being martyred. And it was also believed at the time that he was the author of the book of Revelations. 
So well done there, Coleman. Both longevity and prophecy on the side of the Celts. Abbot Wilfrid countered that John was only using the date to fit in with the laws of the time, and that it was never intended to be church doctrine. Further, he said that the Christians, even in the region where John preached, were now using the Roman dating and had abandoned John's method. Then he followed it up by arguing that the Roman dating for Easter had links to Peter and Paul, since Rome is where they both evangelized and were martyred. So, Rome had two apostles rather than one. Sure, the city had killed them both, but details. Also, Wilfred was quick to point out that all of Christendom, except for the Celtic Church, sided with the Roman dating. And how could everyone else be wrong, and these dirty Celts in their silly haircuts be right? Clearly, if everyone jumped off a bridge, Abbot Wilfred would too. But rather than making that argument, Bishop Coleman pointed out that the Celtic Church was following in the footsteps of major figures, such as Anatolius and Columba. And how could men like them be wrong? Wilfred sort of shrugged that off, saying that Coleman simply misunderstood Anatolius. And as for Columba, he was ignorant in the correct way to calculate the date. And that was forgivable, and so he could still be counted as Christian. But the current monks of Iona didn't have his excuse. And there it was. The nuclear option. Either you agree with Rome on the calendar, or you aren't a Christian. Actually, let me give you the direct quote from Bede, because it's devastatingly cutting. Quote, Concerning your father Columba and his followers, whose sanctity you say you imitate, and whose rule and precepts confirmed by signs from heaven you say that you follow, I might answer that when many in the day of judgment say to our Lord that in his name they have prophesied and have cast out devils and have done wonderful works, our Lord will reply that he never knew them. But far be it from me to speak thus of your fathers, for it is much more just to believe good than evil of those whom we know not. Wherefore I do not deny also to those who have been God's servants, and beloved of God, who with rude simplicity, but pious intentions, have themselves loved him. Nor do I think that such observance of Easter did them much harm, as long as none came to show them a more perfect rule to follow. For assuredly, I believe that if any teacher reckoning after the Catholic manner had come among them, they would have readily followed his admonitions, as they are known to have kept those commandments of God, which they had learned and knew. But as for you and your companions, you certainly sin. If, having heard the decrees of the apostolic see, nay, of the universal church, confirmed as they are by holy scripture, you scorn to follow them, for, though your fathers were holy, do you think that those few men, in a corner of the remotest island, are to be preferred before the universal church of Christ throughout the world? End quote. Snap. And then he backed it up, pointing out that the Roman church was the successor to Peter. So therefore, Peter de facto supported the Roman position. And not done yet, Wilfred then reached back to the Council of Nicaea, which also discussed the issue of the date of Easter, and reminded King Oswiu that any who rejected the Roman calculation of Easter would be, quote, accursed, end quote. Double nuclear option. And you can almost imagine Augustine saying, yeah, tell him. And really, what do you do after that? On the one hand, you have someone saying, look, we have a reasonable basis for our date. 
And podcasters note here, their date also went farther in history than the Roman method. And while that is a decent argument, the other side basically responded with, if you disagree with us, you're gonna burn in hell. It would be like one person saying, I'd like pepperoni on my pizza because that's my favorite topping. And the other person responding with, I want sausage or I'm killing everyone in the room. I know which argument is more persuasive, but I also know who I wouldn't invite back to movie night. So King Oswiu was in a tough spot here, and he didn't want to go to hell, obviously. So he asked a pretty logical question. Quote, tell me which is greater in the kingdom of heaven, Columba or the Apostle Peter, end quote. Brutal. You've got that whole thing where Peter was the rock that the church was founded on, and then you've got the issues of him holding the keys to the gate of heaven, and of course, Peter also actually knew Christ. Columbo was a pretty excellent missionary, and he was a saint, but how do you compete with that? So we're told that the whole synod agreed that Peter was better. And so King Oswiu, not wanting to risk going to hell over an administrative matter regarding calendars, decided to give this one to Rome. Not only that, but he said that Coleman also needed to get a haircut, and that he would have to leave his see to, quote, a better man, end quote. Harsh. And it was pretty clear who that better man would be. And a year later, Wilfred did indeed get elected to the Bishopric of Northumbria. So, yeah, tough break for Bishop Coleman. Now, many of those present, including Hilda, accepted the king's position. But Bishop Coleman, who had just been publicly given a pink slip, left incredibly downtrodden. And once Coleman reached Lindisfarne, he spoke to the Irish monks who were there and they agreed to return to the Celtic lands, where they could practice their religion. So they packed up at least half of all their relics, including the bones of St. Aidan, and scampered. And I like to imagine that before he left, he muttered, Enjoy your monastery, you godless jerks, but we're taking all the holy stuff with us. But, you know, who knows? However, after decades of struggle, with the balance swinging back and forth, now Rome was the unchallenged religious authority in England. And Queen Aenflaed of Bernicia and King Alfrith of Deira were on the right side of history. Well, King Alfrith was never heard from again. So maybe raising a theological issue which resulted in his kin-slaying father having to publicly renounce his own faith and accept the Roman position wasn't exactly the wisest of choices. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And of course, there are a lot of ways you can get involved with the community, and you can find all of them at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right, thanks for listening. <laughs>